0: Sunday morning, May 26th, our class on marriage. We just had a small group exercise answering the question together, what influences have shaped the person you are and your expectations, vision, and demands for marriage? So what were some of the uh, answers you came up with? Obviously, your parents. Parents. Extended family. Extended family, if you were close to your grandparents. Chad? Uh, College roommates. College roommates, peers. Your siblings—they might get married before you. Some
1: readings we
0: done we Say that again. Some readings, we done we Some readings you did. Influence that. Somebody say media. How, you know when, when my um, my wife and my daughter would watch these. When my wife and my daughter would watch the uh, Hallmark movies at Christmas time. I just want to stand up and scream and shout and say, no, 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 Laura, it's not like that. It's not like that. You get, you get a very distorted picture of what love is. It, it's, because media doesn't have the time to do it right. To do it right, when you, when you have trouble, you have to sit down and take a long time to work it out, and nobody in the media has time to portray a movie or a TV show that way. But that's life. Uh, Nate said the Bible. So suppose you fell in love with Jesus in college, Jesus would have an enormous influence on the way you viewed yourself, your expectations, and your demands for marriage. In fact, he should be the person who is the most influential. But regardless, the point is, when two people get married, here's, here's husband, here's wife, standing behind that are all of these influences on what you expect and how you view this relationship. And sometimes the influencers are not as conscious as you'd think. You can be raised in a family, sort of observe mom and dad, and subconsciously draw conclusions about what you do and don't want to do in your marriage as a result. this is very helpful to know what were those influences. Let's look at number 12 at the bottom of the handout. And uh, the question is, what will you expand? We're working through a series of questions to help nurture a vision for a gospel-centered marriage. Here's our 12th question. Will you expand your understanding of gospel love? And we'll tease that out in a moment. Here's one, a couple of verses to think about. 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. There are two critical things you see in these verses, and they're very consistent with, uh, the rest of the Bible, and, and Pauline thought, one is the relationship between the indicative and the imperative. In this case, what's the indicative? In other words, what, what, what is stated that's a fact? God, loved us. God loves you. Fact. God loves you. Jesus saved you. That's the indicative. You know how Paul's epistles are structured? First half, he gives you the gospel, what Jesus has done for you. That's the indicative. What's been done for you, who you are. The second half of the epistle, there's usually a transition, and so, my brothers, I urge you to. The second half of the epistle is the imperative, what you do about it, the commands. Religion is the commands, be a good person, and God will accept you. That's religion. Christianity is, God has loved you, so act accordingly. The indicative precedes the imperative. And we get those mixed up during our whole lives. We try to base our justification on our sanctification rather than our justification on the indicative. Christ has died for me and clothed me in his righteousness. Do you see that in these verses? The indicative and the imperative? What's the imperative in these verses?
1: Love.
0: Love one another. So what's that tell you about your marriage? You're not going to love your spouse well until... Until what? The indicative is screaming at you. The indicative is more important to you than your spouse. That you're savoring the love of God for you. I was reading in my devotions this morning on Psalm 63. David says... Your love is better than life itself. Until you can say that, you will find your life in something else. You will. And when you're married, it's usually you want to find it in your marriage or your spouse or a close friend or your job or whatever it is. Or if you, if you realize I'm never going to find life in my spouse, you'll find it in something else, You'll work, you'll pour yourself into your work or one of your hobbies or whatever and your spouse is going to get left to the wayside. Or pour yourself into your children and your spouse is left going, where do I fit into this? What's the other thing you see in these verses? And that is roots and what do you think I'm getting at here? Roots and fruit. What's the root? The love of God. The love of God in your heart produces... The love, love for others. Translated, you can't look this up on your own unless you're drawing from. It's the same thing said a different way. So show me a person who knows how much God loves them, and I'm going to show you somebody who's really intentional about this. Show me a person who's not sure about this, and this is going to be spotty at best. Janice, did you have something you wanted to say?
1: I don't know whether this is an example of arguing from the greater to the lesser in that sense mm-hmm. you have the great love of Christ therefore, you know, we can love yes. each other humanly.
0: That's yes, mean, good. Generally. From the greater to the So let's turn the page and these are a number of quotes from Paul Tripp's book. Do you all know the name Paul Tripp? He uh, served at CCF in Philadelphia the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, which was the counseling arm of Westminster Seminary in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Paul Tripp was there with Dave Pallison and Ed Welch and a number of those guys. Uh, uh, Dave Pallison actually dying of pancreatic cancer, sadly. Paul Tripp's gone his own way for his own ministry. But his book on marriage, What Were You Expecting?, here are some quotes from it that I thought would be helpful to tease out a vision of gospel love. Somebody read the first one there for us. Being willing to have your life complicated by the needs
1: and struggles and for anger.
0: Thank you. So naturally, am I willing to have my life complicated naturally? No, I don't like complication. I mean, who gets up in the morning and says, oh, great, can't wait to see what complications come my way today. <laughs> we just don't, right? Isn't the 11th commandment, you've not hassle? <laughs> we don't want to experience hassle. So, <laughs> Chad? No, the, the
1: second phrase or the second line of that is even more important. Elaborate. How do you, being willing to have your life complicated good at it needs to to your spouse without impatience or anger, yeah. Maybe it's too personal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You're saying
0: impatience and anger are two people?
1: Kind of personal.
0: Yeah. That's too personal.
1: Yeah. No, I'm I'm making a joke. Keep <laughs> <You> talking. <just> but... <laughs> Keep going.
0: So will we? Will our spouses give us reasons to be tempted to be impatient and angry? Yes, wake up in the morning with that expectation. When I was a career counselor, I would tell students they need to create a a sheet of paper, and they would put the word no on it a hundred times. And when they went on their job search and they get rejected, the average was you get a job offer every 100 times. So get up in the morning, as it were, and put on that sheet a hundred reasons for impatience and anger, so just expect it. This helps students who expect rejection and know how to deal with it. But look, we don't, and we don't naturally wake up in the morning and say, I expect frustration. I expect reason to be impatient. And if we're caught off guard by it, what were you expecting? I mean, that's the point of this book. Somebody read the next one.
1: Actively fighting the temptation to be critical and judgmental towards your spouse while looking for ways to encourage the daily commitment to resist the needless moments of conflict that come from pouring out and responding to minor offenses.
0: So how many of you have the spiritual gift of criticism? <laughs> Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> and uh, you know, with smiles on our faces, what does that mean, how you need to start the day proactively? What's a good way to start the day proactively? Saying what to yourself? Left to myself, I will will get into criticism mode or judgmental mode. Now, look at the second half of this a commitment to resist the needless moments of conflict that come from pouring out and responding to minor offenses. What does that mean you need to be able to do? You need a classification chart, don't you? Because what's the opposite of a minor offense? Major. A major offense. What do you need to do when you've got a major offense? Deal with it. You've got to deal with it. So you need there's there's a decision point where you go, this I am throwing off my shoulder. I, I know this. I'm not going to get upset about this. Lord, help me just throw it off my shoulder. Some things that are offenses, you just need to just say, okay, maybe we need to come back and process that. I'll, I'll just reserve judgment. But if there are major offenses in your marriage, if you, and we'll get to uh, conflict resolution in a, probably two weeks, they'll kill your marriage if you don't deal with them. They'll kill them. But we're going to get to conflict resolution real soon. So you, you just need to know, you, you, right? You can't always be upset about minor things. You've got to learn pff, that this too will pass. Janice?
1: One thing that, the Lord is kind of drawing me towards is when I see something minor, I say, "Thank you, Lord, that that's all I have to complain about my husband." Good. And that gives me perspective of how minor it is and how good. it is not necessary. Good. And to be thankful for all the good things.
0: Did y'all hear that? So when you see something minor that's an irritant. Janice is saying, "Stop and say thank you that that's what it is and not I have to go visit my husband in jail." Right? That's a good point. Could be worse. Nate? I think you should be careful ignoring
1: all the minor because if you have something that's super recurring, it becomes major.
0: Okay. So you need to know. You just have to be able to understand what that is. If there's a recurring thing, then you have to decide, is that something we talk about, we process, if it continues to bother you? Okay? Or what happens is you stuff those, you stuff those, you stuff those, and then when you're blowing up over something minor, it means you're not dealing with those things. You're, all of a sudden, you blow up.
1: Or it's not being minor to you because of your personality. Two people that grow in two different households, something, the dishes being done before dinner was major. And it wasn't to you. So
0: <laughs> you're so bringing up our conflicts again? <laughs> what happened to there? Chad? Did you chase Chad away? It is. But but I get the
1: whole idea, the the minor thing. And I deserve help, Kind of helped me lately.
0: Can you be willing to say what I thought was important, I realize now wasn't? What does that take in your heart to say? Humility. Humility. So it was a major thing for me that, and now that I've met this person and seen a a different perspective, maybe you're willing to change the way you view that thing. Mm -hmm. And that's what God is doing in your marriage. He's challenging the way you view things and challenging the person that you are because God doesn't want to leave you as that person. He wants to make you more like Jesus. Let's look at who would read the next one that begins being lovingly.
1: Being lovingly honest and humbly approachable in times of misunderstanding and being more committed to unity and love than you are to winning, accusing, or being right. Right
0: it's a fundamental commitment if, if, if the truth about your heart is I'm fundamentally committed to being right what do you need to do about that first of all you need to ask yourself why am I that way what's driving that and what's driving the need to be right to accuse and to win what's driving that ultimately
1: Idolatry.
0: insecurity you're insecure you've got something to prove you're trying to compensate for some internal security with a victory, with being right, being in control, being liked, whatever the is. Our idols are ultimately driven by an insecurity that what is not failing to meet that need? What's not failing to meet it? What's failing to meet it? The gospel. The love of Jesus for you frees you from the need to prove anything. The gospel is you've got nothing to prove and nothing to lose. You're rich. Remember, there's no scoreboard in heaven that says, Mike's argument's one, Janice's argument's one. There's no scoreboard in heaven. God wants to know, how well did you sacrifice and lay down your life for your wife? That's the scoreboard. When you didn't get your way, what did it look like? That's the scoreboard in heaven. Um, do you agree with me? Do you understand what I'm saying about insecurity? The only thing powerful enough to compensate for our insecure, and we, we all got kicked out of garden, we're insecure from the word, the word God. Because we live in a world where we know we're at odds with God, whether or not we consciously admit it, we know we're at God's at odds with us. We know that in our heart of hearts, that's Romans 1. We're not right with God. We know that, and therefore we're trying to prove something. Adam and Eve were trying to prove it in the garden, these stupid cover-ups, this blame shifting, this hiding from God. Right there it started. And until the gospel addresses that in your heart, you're going to continue to operate that way in all of your relationships, not least the one you're closest to. That's that's why that's that's why Christianity is so incredibly helpful. It really does free you from the power of your idols. It addresses the deepest longings of our hearts. Somebody read a daily commitment. A daily commitment to admit your
1: sin, weakness, the failures. And to resist the temptation to offer an excuse or shift the blame.
0: So, so intuitively, when I got married, I thought admitting weakness, admitting fault, admitting saying, sin, was was to show me to be weak. And actually, that would show me to be strength. Because the reality is, if somebody's walking with the Lord, you'll find that quality to be more attractive than anything else. Admitting sin, being honest. Resisting the temptation to offer excuses and shift the blame, And look, your spouse can detect that. <laughs> they can smell it. So can your kids. Okay, next one. Being willing. Being
1: willing when confronted by your spouse to examine your heart rather than rising to your defense or shifting the
0: focus. Okay. If your spouse confronts you about something... What do you begin to feel? Typically, frail sinners begin to feel what? Defensive. Defensive. Right? I've got something to protect. I've got something to prove. I've got an image to maintain. We begin, look, it's all of us. If if you're not this way, glory to God that you're that for in your sanctification. But when we're confronted, we tend to get defensive. And how does that help? It doesn't. Okay? So, I'm being confronted and I begin to feel my emotions rise. What would be a good thing to do? Admit it to yourself and admit it to your spouse. Hey, honey, I hear what you're saying and I just want to be honest with you. I'm feeling defensive right now. Can we push pause? Is that a reasonable thing to say? If your spouse asks for that, grant it to them. If that's all they ever do, you've got a problem. At some point, you've got to unpause the pause button, right? And let or hit What the pause button's this thing? What shows up? The little solid arrow. But hit it again so you can deal with the conflict. You may need to ask for time to reflect. Your spouse is confronting you with something... And if you're not in a good disposition to discuss it, you need to know this about yourself. Just say, can I get a time out here? We've got to take time out and call a play for the situation. That's okay. Grant each other space to process things. Don't feel like, don't demand that someone, as a rule, don't demand that someone always have an answer on the spot. Some of us are slow processors. Some of us get into situations and then, and then we realize about a day later, man, that, uh, I wasn't seeing that at that point. That's just the way you are. Will you, did you get a hand up?
1: I was agreeing. I'm a slow Okay.
0: So the, the, the nod always goes to the slowest processor. That's where the nod goes. How about um, a daily commitment to?
1: <clears throat> a daily commitment to admit your sin, weaknesses, and failure to resist the temptation. Oh, I'm sorry, we just
0: did that one. Yeah, right below. All right, being willing when confronted by your spouse. Oh, we already did that one. Yes, strike um, two. I'm sorry. <laughs> <I didn't know. laughs> but you're not feeling defensive, are you? <laughs>
1: Daily commitment to growing love so that the love you <laughs> offer yourself is increasingly selfless, mature, and patient.
0: Home run. So what's that say to you, anybody? What do you think he means? A daily commitment. He's a Christian counselor. What's he saying? It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come naturally. Therefore, you have to be it's intentional. intentional. I just assume when I wake up in the morning, whatever spiritual collateral had, had accrued in my heart overnight is gone. <laughs> like letting air out of the room. I just assume it's gone. And i got to go get with Jesus and get get it filled up again. The command, we'll see this when we look at Ephesians 5 on marriage, the command to be filled with the Spirit is a present imperative. You're never off. You always need to be seeking to be filled with the Spirit. Thank you, Radu. Any other comments about that? Next one. Being unwilling to do what?
1: When, wrong, when you have been wrong. No, wait.
0: Nice
1: and loud. Being unwilling to do what is wrong when you have been wrong, but to look for concrete and specific ways to overcome evil with good.
0: Okay. He's probably thinking that 1 Thessalonians 5 passage we've been looking at, right? Never repay evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all men. And Romans 12. Never repay evil for evil. What is your, what's the instinct of our hearts? You hurt me, I hurt you. You criticize me, I criticize you. You call me out on something, I'm going to find things immediately to call you out on. We, we, we try to keep the playing field level on criticism. Does God do that with you? When, when, when Jesus convicts you of sin, what does he point you to? The cross. The cross. He doesn't say, you owe me X number of good behaviors to make up for your sin. God says, look to my son Jesus who died for that sin, cleansed you, clothed you in his righteousness, and accepts you. God isn't looking tit for tat. That's not the gospel. That's moralism. It's religion. And only with the cross in my heart am I able to return eat good for evil. Just... Raise your hand if you want to comment or add anything. I think we're up to being a good student of.
1: Being a good student of your spouse, looking for his or her physical, emotional, and spiritual needs, so that in some way you can remove the burden, support him or her as he carries it, or encourage him or her all the way.
0: Thank you, Reddy. Thoughts, comments? What does that presuppose you're doing?
1: Presupposes you care for their well-being.
0: You care for their well-being. Why would you care for your spouse's well-being? Because she's your wife. She's your wife. And? Your better half. Your better half. And? You desire to serve her. Like to serve her needs. Because? Because she's Jesus' precious treasure. Your spouse is the immeasurably valuable treasure of Jesus Christ. If you don't ultimately put the reason there, and you put it on other things, I think you can, that can, your, those other things can get swallowed up in our own selfishness. Do, study your spouse. What are, their, what are their burdens? Physical or spiritual? And do you believe God has uniquely equipped you as a burden bearer, carrier with that person? Chad? Uh, just
1: to compliment a bit, a book we read, or I'm not sure, Gary yes. Sloan? Five uh, love languages or love languages, and when you're studying your spouse's needs or trying to, to get those things in line or to understand them, her, in my case, or Genesis case, to understand you. Yep. Um, there's different love languages.
0: So we did that in this class. Okay. We did love languages. Thank you. But that's part of it, right? Mm-hmm. What's a burden that your spouse struggles with? What are the types of burdens that we're gonna run into? Struggles with kids, struggles with our parents,
1: struggles with
0: jobs, struggle at work,
1: financial
0: Financial struggles, health Health struggles, maintaining your home, struggles and strife with peers and relationships. Okay? So if you don't know what your spouse's burdens are, what might you do? Yes. Ask them How can I be a specific support to you in your burdens? Next one being willing to invest. How about from the back of the room? Being
1: willing to invest the time necessary the to discuss, examine, and understand the problem that you face with a couple, staying on task until the problem is removed or you agree upon the strategy of response.
0: Okay? And this is why I said at the beginning of the class that you never see good conflict resolution done in the media because they don't have time. They just, they got to get through the 60 minute show or whatever it is. It just takes too much time. To, to see this done well. So you we, we can never take your cues from the media about how to, how to do relationship well or resolve conflict. It just takes time. Commitment to stay on task until you've removed the problem or got a strategy. Next one.
1: Always being willing to ask forgiveness and always being committed to grant forgiveness when it is requested.
0: On what authority does uh, Paul Tripp write that? The Bible says it. You have to forgive. Again, be sensitive to context. If you've grievously hurt that person and you're, just, and, you're, and you're saying, okay, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, and you're saying that to get them off your back or to sweep the problem under the carpet, if, you, if you've been the, the one that's been hurt, say, of, of course I forgive you, but let's, let's just wait and feel the gravity of this and the weight of this. But you then always have to grant forgiveness. Christ always forgives us. Next one, recognizing the high. The
1: value of trust in a marriage and being faithful to your promises and true
0: to your word. Okay, one of the greatest gifts God gives you in relationship is the gift of trust. And somebody finished the sentence. Once trust is broken, Very hard to restore. We had a child that lied to us. He even, this person, even wrote an essay in the 8th grade, How to Lie to Your Parents. Now, we found out about that after the fact. Just how joyful do you think we were to hear about that essay? But after one or two lies, then you never know when the child is telling you the truth. And, and in relationships once trust is broken enormously hard to restore. And if you've been the liar or the one inflicting the distrust, what should your attitude be towards your spouse? somebody put it into words. I understand that
1: you find it hard to trust me because what I've done in the past please forgive me please forgive me and side and help me to be accountable and to restore trust in our relationship.
0: Good, and I won't, that's exactly right, and I won't expect you to trust me until there's a proven track record of trust built. And
1: I think in that case, in God I trust, everybody else wants bring data. So you've got to back your, back, you have to back your talk with options.
0: Yes. You said, in God I trust, and what was the last?
1: Everybody else must bring data.
0: Must bring data. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard that one. It's <laughs> a teacher's thing. That's it from the teacher. I don't
1: know what I've heard, but yeah.
0: Trust it's and me. verify. Sure Thank you, Fabi. This is so entertaining in our class. It's just marvelous. <laughs> okay, next one, recognizing the... Oh, wait. I just did that one. <laughs> Underneath it, speaking kindly. Speaking. What time is it?
1: 10, 14, right. yeah. Yeah. 10, 15. Okay. We're done. What does time fly when oh, you're I'm having fun? Sure. All right,
0: so we'll, we'll start there next time, and uh, Lord willing, finish this handout and maybe start into Ephesians 5, just so you know what's coming. Let me pray for y'all. Lord, what a privilege uh, to join into this dialogue with my brothers and sisters about these important principles and truths that shape our relationships you know relationship is hard, you see our sin, our frailty, our selfishness, our innate defensiveness, you know all this, Lord, and yet we have hope, because in the gospel, in Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, and with the cross very vivid to us, and knowing that your love is better than life itself, we, we can do these relationships well, we can, and we thank you that there's hope in a frail world. Don't let us leave our marriages where they are. Let them grow, let them develop, let them mature, let them be more and more a picture of your ravishing love for us and your commitment to resolve the conflict we had with you through Jesus and the cross. Now, Lord, give us grace to worship you with all of our hearts, to sing loud praises, to hear your word, to rejoice together as a congregation of your people. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.